It is July the 2nd, 2020, and I just received a text from one of our recent Texas A&M College of Medicine students, and she is now an OBGYN intern. She was so excited because she had just delivered a fetus with gastroschisis, and thankfully everything was well, and she also was a primary surgeon for a bilateral tubal ligation. Well, welcome to the real world, and welcome to OBGYN Residency. So that got me thinking, fetal gastroschisis. That, of course, is a great topic for a podcast. So in this session, we're going to cover the epidemiology, pathophysiology, and management of fetal gastroschisis. Gastroschisis is the presence of bowel loops floating in the abdominal fluid outside the abdomen. There is no membrane covering the bowel loops, so these organs are exposed to amniotic fluid and potentially could be damaged. The opening in the abdomen is usually just off to the side of where the umbilical cord connects. The incidence is approximately 1 in 1,800 births here in the United States. Again, that's a clinical pearl. The incidence is approximately 1 in 1,800 births per year in the U.S. All right, so if you're about to take your NBME or you're in residency and going to take your CREOG, remember that in gastroschisis, the defect in the abdominal wall is located almost always to the right of the umbilicus. Left-sided gastroschisis is a very rare entity. Again, most cases are to the right of the umbilicus. A particular single cause of gastroschisis has yet to be identified. Chromosomal abnormalities are not typically seen, especially if no other findings are revealed on ultrasound. The cause of gastroschisis is often unknown and likely is the result of many genes combined with the environment. In other words, it may be an outcome of epigenetic expression. Recently, the CDC researchers have reported important findings about some factors that affect the risk of having a child with gastroschisis. One of these risks are younger maternal age. Teenage mothers are more than twice as likely to have a child with gastroschisis than older mothers. Also, alcohol and tobacco use are two known risk factors. Women who consumed alcohol or were a smoker were more likely to have a baby with gastroschisis, according to one CDC review. As for prenatal diagnosis, most cases can be detected by the end of the first trimester and certainly in the second trimester. Prenatal detection rates are over 90% as a result of routine ultrasound screening for fetal anomalies and the use of maternal serum alpha-fetal protein assessments for open neural tube defects or for screening for genetic issues. On ultrasound exam, gastroschisis appears as a relatively small, anywhere from 2 to 5 centimeters, para-umbilical abdominal wall defect, again, usually to the right of the midline. This has visceral herniation. On ultrasound, the exteriorized bowel appears cauliflower-like because fluid between the adjacent loops causes an acoustic interface. Visualization of the bowel is enhanced by the highly echogenic bowel as well as wall edema and inflammation that can occur in addition to the dilated lumen created by multiple volvuli in the free-floating loops. Associated gastrointestinal abnormalities and problems can occur in up to 25% of cases. This can include malrotation, atresia, stenosis, 
perforation or volvulus. Disruption of the superior mesenteric artery, for example, can also lead to this volvulus or to apple peel jejunal ileal lesions. Meckel's diverticulum and gallbladder atresia also occur but are much less common. Bladder herniation has been reported in 6% of cases and may cause bowel or urinary tract dilation. That's why it's so vital to have a detailed ultrasound, a good level 2, to make sure that there's no associated extra gastrointestinal abnormalities. Most cases have no extra intestinal abnormalities. Amniotic fluid volume abnormalities frequently occur with gastroschisis. Oligohydramnios may be related to fetal growth restriction and is a risk factor for cord compression and its sequelae. Polyhydramnios is less common and is an important finding because it is often associated with bowel atresia and is predictive of severe bowel complications in the neonatal period. This brings us to assessment of fetal growth. Assessment of fetal growth is typically performed starting at 24 weeks and repeated every 3 to 4 weeks. Now here's a clinical pearl. Growth restriction in fetuses with abdominal wall defects is predictive of an increased risk of adverse neonatal outcomes in some studies and this may be associated with an increased risk of fetal demise. So the increased risk of fetal demise with gastroschisis is closely tied to fetal growth restriction. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. With these repeat serial ultrasounds for assessment of fetal growth, it is also the opportune time to keep an eye on the bowel status. It is recommended to perform serial targeted ultrasound evaluations of the stomach and the bowel to look for significant dilation or acute changes like thickening and edema at the time of these fetal growth scans, again, about every three to four weeks although some advocate for additional bowel assessment every two weeks after 32 weeks. But again, that's not standard of care. It's just some expert opinion. If these changes occur before 34 weeks, then it is recommended to administer a course of glucocorticoids to enhance fetal maturation in case preterm delivery should become indicated. But again, expert opinion states not to deliver solely on the basis of bowel wall thickening or dilation. So let's say that again. Currently, expert opinion, which is level C opinion, states not to deliver solely on the basis of bowel wall thickening or dilation. Now, we'll get into the prime timing of delivery in just a moment, but we're talking about medically indicated preterm birth, and most experts believe that bowel wall thickening or dilation alone does not qualify for indicated preterm birth. Now, what about fetal genetics? Well, the purpose of fetal genetic testing is to obtain information that has prognostic significance and can impact prenatal decision-making with respect to continuing the pregnancy or pregnancy or delivery management and, of course, management of the newborn. 
Remember this clinical pearl that we've already stated, the prevalence of chromosomal abnormalities in fetuses with isolated gastroschisis is not increased above that from the baseline population. Remember that isolated gastroschisis are in cases where there's no extraintestinal anomalies. So, this anatomical finding alone is not a strong indication to pursue invasive diagnostic fetal testing, assuming that a ruptured omphalocele sac has been excluded because the factor, the other diagnosis that's highest on the differential in cases of presumed gastroschisis is that it's an omphalocele or worse, a ruptured omphalocele sac that can look like gastroschisis because genetic conditions are much more likely with omphalocele compared to gastroschisis. Now, because the risk is higher when extra intestinal structural abnormalities are identified, then genetic amniocentesis is warranted in those cases. Microarray molecular testing has been recommended whenever fetal structural anomalies are detected on prenatal ultrasound, but the additional value in cases of isolated gastroschisis has not been extensively studied. All right, let's come back and talk about antepartum management. What about antepartum fetal surveillance? Well, let's get into that next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The precise timing, choice of test, and frequency of antepartum fetal surveillance is somewhat arbitrary. In the absence of fetal growth restriction, oligo, or other complications warranting close fetal surveillance like substantial bowel dilation or preeclampsia, then most experts suggest weekly NST and or biophysical profile testing beginning at 32 weeks of gestation for all fetuses with gastroschisis. Now, this is because these pregnancies may be associated with an increased risk of fetal demise late in the third trimester, with the highest risk, remember, occur in those with fetal growth restriction. Fetal surveillance is increased to twice weekly after 36 weeks. Although fetal heart rate abnormalities are more common in these pregnancies, the value of antepartum fetal surveillance is only supported by actual low-quality data. If substantial bowel dilation is detected, then it's recommended to begin weekly antepartum fetal testing upon that diagnosis rather than waiting until 32 weeks. If fetal growth restriction is suspected, then non-stress tests or biophysical profiles and Doppler velocimetry of the umbilical artery at least weekly from diagnosis until 28 weeks of gestation and then twice weekly thereafter should occur. If absent or reversed flow in the umbilical artery is detected at greater than 34 weeks, then delivery is indicated. 
All right, as we come to the end of this podcast, let's talk about timing of delivery and route of delivery. The decision on timing of delivery is based on a combination of factors, including gestational age, ultrasound findings, and fetal test results like non-stress tests or biophysical profile or in cases of fetal growth restriction, umbilical cord Doppler results. Management should include consultation with a maternal fetal medicine specialist, neonatologist, and pediatric surgeon before delivery to discuss patient-specific factors in the timing of birth. Most experts, again, do not consider bowel dilation alone an indication for preterm delivery if fetal growth, amniotic fluid volume, and fetal antepartum testing remain reassuring. By convention, delivery of fetuses with gastroschisis that have normal growth, normal amniotic fluid volume, and reassuring fetal testing is scheduled for 38 weeks or more, but ideally at 38 weeks of gestation. Delivery before 38 weeks is performed for standard obstetrical indications. Now, it should be noted that the mean gestational age at spontaneous labor in pregnancies complicated by this condition is 36 weeks of gestation. So once again, it's important to remember that if everything else looks well, most would recommend delivery not at 39 weeks, but at 38 weeks to prevent any potential fetal complications. Now, regarding the route of delivery, although high-quality evidence is not available, it is recommended to reserve cesarean delivery for the usual obstetric indications. Labor and rupture of the membranes have not been proven to adversely affect outcome, and there's no evidence that cesarean delivery improves outcome in uncomplicated gastroschisis. In meta-analysis of observational studies, evaluating the effect of mode of delivery in babies with abdominal wall defects, and that's included gastroschisis or omphalocele, cesarean delivery was not associated with improvements in any neonatal outcomes, including mortality. Some pediatric surgeons recommend cesarean delivery for gastroschisis if there's liver involvement, especially when there's marked liver herniation, because of the theoretical risk of dystocia and trauma. Now, this is a relatively rare finding, and it may represent more of an omphalocele issue than true gastroschisis. The delivery route in these rare cases should be individualized based on patient-specific factors. If there is liver herniation, then limb body wall defect or severe amniotic band syndrome should be ruled out because cesarean delivery would not be indicated in these cases that are otherwise pretty much considered lethal. With appropriate surgical correction, the survival rate of gastroschisis is over 90% in the literature due to developments in antepartum care, neonatal intensive care, and TPN when indicated. Now, the mortality rate has decreased over the years, but there is still the potential for fetal and neonatal morbidity in the immediate neonatal period. Well, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the fetal structural abnormality called gastroschisis. The information for this podcast comes from the CDC and the MFM series on fetal anomalies focusing on gastroschisis. Thanks for being part of our listenership, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.